What is up, everyone? Welcome to Group Therapy. I'm licensed psychologist, Dr. J. And I'm licensed clinical social worker, Kristen Gingrich. I'm licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Kristen Casey. I'm licensed psychologist, Dr. Jessica Rabin. Boy, are you all in for a treat. You don't have to listen to us jabber on and on and on because we got a guest expert (laughs) coming on. Dr. Lena Haji will be with us because we're talking all about prison culture and mental health. So settle in, take a seat. And welcome to Group Therapy. So great to be back together. I don't know why it feels like we haven't all been together. Maybe I'm just having memory loss. The last three recordings, I don't think we have, though. Well, that's some validation for my elderly brain over here. (laughs) But I was, this topic is one that I was curious about. I'm so, so grateful for Dr. Haji joining us here shortly. But my, my question off the jump is, what has your experiences been with those who have been incarcerated with the prison system? You can give me personal or professional. I'm just open. I'm just wondering what your experience has been. Oh, KBI, you should go first. Uh, <laughs> after that poll in our I broadcast. Mean, I mean, a, according to our group chat, they think that I've been arrested, which I have not been out of all of us. I'm the one that hasn't been arrested. So The one? <laughs> There could be someone who has been arrested. I don't know. It wasn't me. Um, But yeah, no, I actually have, I don't have direct experience working in incarceration, but I have experience working with individuals who've been incarcerated, lots and lots in in the substance use world. You work a lot with individuals who are on probation or parole or drug court. Um, I have tons of experience working in that part of the field as well as kind of like that post incarceration um kind of integrating back into the world into their family life um kind of that impact of prison culture on their daily life outside of um prison whether it's jail or prison but yeah that's that's my experience my experience is next to nothing um i have had some individuals particularly in the hospital that like have a history of like being involved in the juvenile justice system um but my interventions with them are really focused on why they're in the hospital Mm -hmm. so as for like experience working with or knowledge um i have none other than what i have learned from dr haji and then watching documentaries and tv shows which is probably not the most accurate depiction (laughs) i love it i love it um i've never worked in a prison system before i've done um some evaluations for like not guilty by reason of insanity so people who are awaiting trial for certain things um and then competency to stand trial evaluations but i've never worked like in a therapeutic setting at all um and i was i was about to say like all the things that I kind of know are from Dr. Haji, you know, just like Jess. Um, as her personal experience, definitely not going to disclose that on the podcast. Uh, so KBI, you're shut out of luck. Sorry. <laughs> well, there you there you have it. Yeah, you know me neither. No professional experience. Um, really, my only personal experience is through my brother being in and out of juvenile mm-hmm. detention through his teenage years, and then. Um, spending some time in jail once he turned an adult. And so my experiences are through him, his stories, visiting him. 
um, and just my impressions of what he would tell me. But otherwise, professionally, none, zero. So I'm really excited for this episode and having this conversation. But, you know, we got to we gotta lead with some statistics. You, we just have to. Jess is here. She missed a few short sessions. Yeah. I, I just need some stats here to set the record straight. Yeah. Just so Jess doesn't hate us again. Jess, yeah. Do you have any stats? <laughs> like why do i hate you and then i forgot rumors just start in the group chat they're not um, they're not rumors if they're true oh i don't hate wow. you all wow um, so one so i looked up a bunch of statistics because like everybody here we all have minimal experience one that really stuck out to me is that about three in five people with a history of mental illness do not receive mental health treatment while incarcerated in mm-hmm. state and federal prisons. Wow. So these are individuals that prior to being incarcerated had a documented history of mental illness. And reading more on that, there was like statistics about or information about, you know, even medication is stopped while incarcerated. Um, actually, wow. that statistic is more than 50% of individuals who were taking mental health medication prior to admission do not consider uh, continue to receive their medication um, once in prison. This is not wow. a statistic, but um, America's jails and prisons have really become the de facto mental health providers because about two in five people that are incarcerated have a history of mental illness, which if we think about, one in five is the number we quote a lot um, for mm-hmm. the general population. So two in five. Um, an interesting study I found too um, from the well, poll, I guess, from the APA found that only one in five Americans believe those in jails and prisons get mental health care, while 75% believe that that mental health care should be supported to incarcerated individuals. So I was glad to see that at least the majority of people polled in that survey do believe that those incarcerated should be getting treatment for their mental health. Wow. I wish I wasn't shocked by the first step uh, with the medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mm-hmm. wish that it was different. And I, I wonder like, cause I'm thinking when people go into a system like that, granted just say it's like their first time or even maybe second time, it's like your whole world stops, you know, especially if you're dealing with mental health, can you imagine like experiencing depression mm-hmm. and then getting into some trouble potentially, and then having to not only face that, but then also face the consequences of not having medication, you know, for something like that. That's got to be really hard. Well, it makes well, me reflect does- on things my brother would tell being both in uh, juvenile detention and jail of how like there's no rehabilitation. He's like, all I left with was more of an education on how to get in more trouble. And he's like, and then you make connections, wow. you make friends with people and you go back on the outside, you wait for them to come out and you get into more trouble together. And that was, I mean, my brother was straight up about that. That was the cycle he got caught in, but definitely not, um, not learning any new ways of being or ways to cope. And of course I shared many times my brother was struggling with bipolar and again, was going untreated. That's so hard. Yeah. I, I I sometimes think about what it might be like to, I'm thinking about your brother too, like to experience that and then to learn more about how to get into more trouble. Right. And then you get out and then like, what do you do? You know what I mean? Like there's, it's culture shock in so many different ways. 
Well, and that culture shock goes so many different ways. Like you said, like it's learning how to get in more trouble in that, in that way. It's that prison culture mentality that doesn't really equate to real life. Um, so mm. a lot of times it's, um, like snitches and we don't talk about these things and I'm not going to say anything or this complete innate distrust for even strangers because you don't know what their motives are because you're not sure because you're so used to not trusting people um, in jail or prison and that culture shock that comes even when you're coming out is whether it's you're coming out a short time, a couple months or even years I mean, a lot of times individuals, especially after years, they're so, it's so ingrained Mm. in Mm. habits, like habits have formed in the ways that you do things in the ways that down to like the way that you shower, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that you get out and you realize that that's not needed and trying to break that. I'm so glad you brought that up because I and I'm I'm curious to hear what Dr. Haji says too about like the ways in which people survive those situations, like the coping, you know, and then like how that's really effective in, you know, a controlled environment. And then when you get out of there, you're what if you're still doing those things and like, you know, what if it impacts relationships or your sense of self and and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about a lot, especially you know, doing research for this, how there's already higher rates of people who are incarcerated with mental illness than in the general population, but how the prison or jail environment probably contributes to the impact of mental health conditions as well. And I didn't know if you all had any thoughts of like things that come to mind based on either personal experience, uh, clinical experience, just watching, (laughs) documentaries of things within the prison system that probably contribute to worsening mental health. I mean, I think people have to be very creative in how to get their needs met just from what I've observed, like through documentaries or like talking to people who've been incarcerated. And I think that there's a lot of feeling of feelings of powerlessness, obviously, you know, and, and I think that that kind of creates a landscape where you feel like you might have to do things that are out of your character, you know, to maybe, get your needs met and stuff like that. So I do wonder how it affects people in terms of like how they feel about themselves and other people and how much that sticks and how much they start to like internalize those beliefs. I don't know if that answers your question, Jess, but just a thought I had. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that's so true. I mean, to kind of even take that from that prison, right? We look at the study, the Zimbardo study, the Stanford prison experiment, right? Mm -hmm. And how just in what was it? Six days, Yep. The study was shut down because people embodied the power mm-hmm. and control and and it got shut down that quickly because the people who were put in power were abusing their powers and the people who were put in prisoner standpoints were starting to feel like prisoners. And that mentality that that creates and that and again, those long lasting effects that those can have like that was just six days imagine if that was your day in and day out for months and years and and that and that piece that that kind of plays on our our self-esteem our self-worth our self-identity um but yeah it's i mean that just that study alone just showed just power and control in just Mm -hmm. such a short term even though it was you know 
a very structured environment, but how quickly those things can kind of take hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know my mind goes to how a lot of these things are set on the front end. And I know, Jesse, you had mentioned like great documentaries, 13th on Netflix, and you can watch it for free online is a great one about the prison industrial complex and basically how the prison system was done to make money and target minorities and oppressed people and people of color um, is simply to make money and have people within it. And it goes into how people of color have longer sentences than people of privilege, like, you know, white people. And so I think thinking of all this on the onset, and of course, the obvious things that come to mind are like the war on drugs and how, you know, people served dozens of years for marijuana. And now mm-hmm. we live in a culture where in some states, people are celebrating that they can just recreational buy marijuana. But the psychological impact of being told like you're this criminal, you're this you know awful person going through the court system, serving all this time only for like a few decades later to be like, no, it's cool. Like you think of the psychological impact that has on your humanhood in the years of your life, you never get back. And again, like it's very, it goes way back and gets, is embedded in racism. Um, mm-hmm. I think about all that from the onset of what even got this person to be arrested in the beginning and how that plays a role to you're this criminal, you're this bad person, you're this menace to society. Mm-hmm. That was actually a conversation that I was having with a friend, I don't know, a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, something like that. And it comes up frequently because in Maine, It is medically available. It also is recreationally available, such as marijuana. And it's so interesting that I don't know what the numbers are, but I would assume that there are people still serving time in our jails for holding an amount of marijuana that is legally allowed to be held at this time. Mm -hmm. And. Mm -hmm. I can't even wrap my head around that of of what that would feel like knowing there's someone out there walking freely holding this much amount of weed that I had yet mm-hmm. I'm serving a sentence mm-hmm. that will permanently be on my record but you will never get arrested for it or even really? batted an eye and again that like you said Justin that psychological piece that that plays mm-hmm. It just makes me think of like the system itself and Mm. how it's just not made with certain people in mind. Because Justin, when you were saying like the nature of what happens before you even get arrested, that's where it starts, you know, Mm -hmm. of like how how our authority figures perceiving you and how are you perceiving them? And, you know, all of those things really contribute because I think when we look at the population of people who are incarcerated, it is obviously not a majority of white people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I really like to think about how the system is inherently racist when it comes to those things um, and how that affects people when they're in prison too. You know, like if you're seeing a lot of people that look like you and you're all in the same place, I mean, how does that feel too? I mean, that's gotta be hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love that we're having this discussion and thinking about a stat I brought up earlier about two and five already have a history of mental illness and thinking about, you know, um, marginalized individuals that we see higher rates represented in prisons, they also tend to not have access to quality mental health care before they go Mm -hmm. to jail. So it's that same like system that we're seeing. So if you have someone, and I am also thinking of like 
racial biases in mental health. So we tend to see uh, black individuals be diagnosed with, say, schizophrenia or Mm -hmm. behavioral disorders more than white individuals. Okay, so then they have that. And then, you know, exactly what you were saying, K-10, what is happening before? So maybe they are having some behavioral outburst, aggressive behavior, whatever it is, then they get arrested for it versus somebody of more privilege, get into jail, prison, don't have access to mental health care before, during, after. um, And it just perpetuates that cycle. Yeah. And what even, you know, I'm even thinking further into it about like what might precipitate that like overt behavior, like around mm-hmm. authority figures, it's because you're scared, you know, it's Absolutely. because like you're literally terrified. So it's like, you know, if you're already scared going into a situation like that, um, that's, that's gotta be tough. Cause you feel like the cards are stacked against you and you don't feel like that because they are stacked against you, you know, if you're a minority. So I'm really interested to hear Dr. Haji's stance on it too. Um, and especially mm-hmm. when it comes to mental health, because if people aren't getting mental health treatment, even before they're in prison, right. Or incarcerated, it just would perpetuate and think about what happens when mental health is just undiagnosed and untreated. I mean, that's so hard. So you're, you're in a place where you don't want to be right. Who knows if you're wrongfully convicted or rightfully like whatever it is. Um, but then you don't have access to those things to make your health better. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like just the gravity of that. I'm like, mm-hmm. It's hitting me a little bit. It's wild. Oh, and, and then you have everything that happens in incarceration that can impact Mm -hmm. that, right? Right. Again, the loss of family, the loss of Mm -hmm. connection, the power and control, solitary confinement, um, abuse or, or things from whether it's employees or other, other individuals in incarceration, like even those things then perpetuate all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was literally just thinking that KBI, how, Based on what I know about how jails and prisons are run, a lot of their practices literally are set up to worsen mental health. Like you're you're taken away from your family, your support system. How many times on this podcast have we talked about the importance of social connection? A mm-hmm. bajillion. The solitary confinement. There has been studies over and over and over again about how harmful solitary confinement is on one's mental health, mm-hmm. exposure to violence, the lo- lack of control over like all these things. Like it is just set up in a way. If you think of all the protective factors of mental health, those are literally taken from people. Yeah. I think, I, th- I think there's some overarching moral things where people sort of need to look internal. Cause I think, People who are concerned about the prison system, of course, they're knowledgeable about the racism that exists, but they're also ask themselves tough questions of, is this creating an environment where this person is less or more likely to do the things that got them in there in the first place? Of course, there's systemic things that are happening in the community and culture that, of course, need time and energy because there's disparities there. But a lot of people who don't care about the prison system, the overarching things I hear is it's supposed to be punishment, which Mm -hmm. being a mental health professional or being any type of person that is about outcomes, 
if you're going to do any form of punishment, wouldn't you want it to decrease the likelihood that this person would do said behavior again? Yeah. And time and time again, what we see from the prison system is it doesn't rehabilitate people. Mm-hmm. It does not. It's not to say it doesn't for anyone, but it certainly doesn't overall. I, Absolutely. I'm like struggling because I'm thinking like, is that how it's supposed to be set up? You know what I mean? Like, is that like, oh man, I'm going down the conspiracy theory avenues right now. So like, let me, let me come back. But when I think about that and it's not helping people transition, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the military. Like when you get out, there's really no transitional programs. There are, but they're like kind of sparse. And then you get out, you're in civilian world. Things are weird, you know? But then when I'm thinking about somebody who's in prison and it's supposed to be quote unquote punishment, right? If some people think that, just not being around your family, not having all your needs met, not having mental health care, that alone is punishment. You know, um, that's really mm-hmm. hard. So then I think about like everything on top of that. Um, I think about solitary confinement too, about like if you're like targeted in prison, like I've, I've watched some documentaries on that. Like when you're targeted, sometimes they'll put you in like a different, um, and I don't know the right verbiage here, but like just a different um, population, you know, within the prison system. And sometimes people go solitary because they're afraid, like they're afraid for their life, you know? And then it's like, okay, I'm in solitary. I'm afraid for my life and I don't have any interaction. So it's like, now what do you do? How does mental health plummet then? It's it's hard. Mm -hmm. Another thing I think of, and Justin, you kind of alluded to this earlier when talking about the the documentary 13th and just like jails are set up to make money is the overcrowding Mm -hmm. we see in prisons and how that also contributes to everything that we've been talking about, like lack of resources. Um, I was looking at some research that found that overcrowding was highly correlated with depression, aggression, hostility, uh, suicide, you know, cause if you're, you're already in a place you don't want to be. And then there's so many people there fighting for resources, you know, who knows how many people are you're sharing a cell with like all of those things. Once again, going back to that, like it's not set up, whether that was intentionally set up that way or not, but definitely not set up to rehabilitate people and not set up to help with anyone's mental health. I think, you know, not taking back what I've said in different ways, what I know to be true is there's plenty of great professionals, boots on the ground within these systems doing their best. What I'm Mm -hmm. talking about is the things we're talking about is the system as a whole. Totally, Totally. I think we're all lying to ourselves. If we believe the way it's set up is going to produce less recidivism and people returning into the prison and in the jail system. It, it's a joke to think about that. And I think that's where morally people who are really like, yes, punish them. They did bad. Like, I think you got to ask yourself some hard questions mm-hmm. and be like, what are you really saying about wanting to, people to grow and change and do different? And what are you really saying about what you want in our society? You just want to punish people is what it feels like. And maybe you haven't paused and thought hard about this system and who it's punishing and why it's punishing them. Mm-hmm. These are really good uh, questions. Yeah. Cause I have a, I have a couple of friends who work in the prison system. I have two um, and they're staff psychologists and they love their job. They love mm-hmm. it and they're great at it. And they're, they're wonderful, wonderfully trained psychologists. And they even say too, that like, if I'm not here, I feel like, 
something has to like, I have to stay here. Like they're so committed, you know, and in a really good way. And, um, it's, I think for some people, it might be hard, like Justin saying to like, not overlook the quote unquote mistakes or things that people have done. But at what point do you say like, how much time is enough time? I mean, it's, it's hard to make these determinations because it seems subjective, you know, in our, in our system, in our law and order system, there's like, okay, a certain amount of sentences for a certain amount of crimes or whatever that is. And I'm thinking like, who came up with that? (laughs) You know, like I just, I just like, and it's usually people in positions of power and people who, you know, don't look like the same people who are in, like, you know what I mean? So I just kind of think like, what is going on? (laughs) But the people who are actually doing the mental health treatment, I think that they're doing their best. I agree. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that a couple of people I know that work in the prison system went into that field because of the issues that they saw in it. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. systemic issues. They're like, you know, no, we want to change this. Like, we want to give them mental health care. You know, um, we want to see, you know, higher rates of people not um, coming back in for the same crime or other crimes, things like that. Um, because I think, and you know, Dr. Haji will probably have a lot more insights on this. It takes, it takes a special type of person to go into the mental health field. And then obviously there's so many different avenues, but I definitely think it takes a special type of person to want to work with incarcerated individuals in a system that is so set up against mental health treatment and care. Um, yeah. Just thinking about the few friends I have that worked. I'm like, no, every, every conversation was like, I want to do this because yeah. the, the system is so flawed. But you know what is certainly not flawed? Oh. <laughs> them shorts. Them shorts. The shorts or research. Jesse's research. research. Flawed. Jesse's um, research for sure. Yeah. Th- this was really interesting. And I was trying to find probably because I don't know a ton, kind of a more like basic article talking about mental health and uh, this might be surprising the article I chose based off me and working with kids but my question I'm going to pose to you all is how do you think prison affects the mental health of elderly inmates why did I not even think about elderly inmates at all no I'm glad you said that because I'm going to share something in like a minute or a second I'm thinking of Erickson stages of development and like generativity versus stagnation. And I'm like, they're definitely feeling stagnant. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what else. That's mm-hmm. the only thing that comes to mind. Um, feeling stagnant. That's not good. It's not yeah. good. <laughs> more, more depression. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit about um, elderly prisoners. They are a minority in the prison population, but their number is increasing more rapidly compared to other groups. And so this study was a review that examined mental health and elderly prisoners, which as a side note, so I'm glad K-10 you made that comment, is not a widely studied population because after going through inclusion criteria for this article, only nine studies fit their inclusion criteria. Wow. Um, looking at elderly and, and mental health in incarcerated samples. So based on the results of the literature review, depression is the most common mental health problem that occurs in elderly prisoners with one study study showing that 33% of prisoners sample met criteria for depression. Yeah. So one third. 
the most common, the second most common mental health problem that occurred in elderly prisoners is anxiety with rates reviewed in studies ranging from anywhere from 13 to 16.3%. Other mental health disorders studied in elderly inmates include PTSD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, alcohol and drug dependence, and personality disorders. And then when examining some potential causes of poor mental health in the elderly, the research highlighted poor stress coping compared to other younger inmates, loss of social relationships and support systems, length of detention period, which I hadn't conceptualized, but if you think about the people like serving life or serving 40 years, they might have been 30 when they went in, but now they're 70 and have spent the past 40 years. Um, and then more difficulty adapting to changes than younger inmates, which I thought was interesting. So anything stick out to you all? I'm just taking it all in because I've never thought about this ever in my life. Like, this is so good. <laughs> like, like just raw. Like, yeah, it's wild, wild to think about. And I mean, I'm not like surprised that, you know, mental health and COVID, like, I, I'm just not surprised, uh-huh. which is unfortunate, but like, you know. Yeah, I can't, nothing was surprising, but I just when you hear the numbers of like a third of all elderly yeah. people in prison have depression, I can't explain how high that it is. Yeah. Honestly, that one like, of the most shocking things to me was not the results. It was the fact that they only found nine studies. Like it's such an understudy. Under. Yeah. Well, and even yeah. if I'm remembering correctly, even like before exclusion criteria, I want to say like with the key terms, it was only like 200 something studies total, which if you're in research, like that is not widely no. studied at all. Oh, no, it was 465. And then after duplicates were removed, 286. I wonder what the average, this, what is, well, I I don't think any of us know this. Like, what's the like the median age of people who are incarcerated? Like, that's like I another- swear on my life, K ten. I was going to ask the same question. I'm a brother. I'm so- I feel like we were siblings in a past life, like straight up. I literally like, I swear to God, just <laughs> like what is the average age? And yeah. then I was debating what's the average age when people get incarcerated versus mm-hmm. like now. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. Look at Jess trying her best. She's just um, like just as a machine. Like there's just nothing over there. Google <laughs> Federal Bureau of Prisons. Let's see. Percent of inmates. So the largest percentage of inmates currently, this was updated on the sixth of January, twenty twenty-four. Thirty-six to forty is the highest. Um oh. followed by forty-one to forty-five and then thirty-one to thirty-five. So thirty-one to forty-five makes up I can't do this math wow. in my head. Seven around seventeen, seventeen plus sixteen, thirty-four, fifty. Around fifty percent are between thirty-one to forty-five in the United wow. States. But Just if we're literally. the elderly, going back to that study, over sixty-five, only two point nine percent of inmates. Hmm. And I'm wondering if most of those individuals who are elderly are individuals who are serving life sentences. Life. Yeah. Right. Right. Let's see. I don't know if because I can't imagine what a ninety-two-year-old is doing to get arrested for the first time. True, especially for the first time. Yeah, especially to go to prison versus jail. Yeah, yeah. If this was just looking at prisons, right? 
It's such an interesting like subculture to think about. Hmm. Know what else is interesting to think about? Always. The polls. The polls. The polls. The polls. Okay. I was in charge of the polls this week. So let's say the first one I asked our group members is, do you think that incarceration can affect mental health? Yes, no, or I'm not really sure. Yes. Yes. A resounding 99% said yes. A few wow. misclicks. Yeah, yeah. Nine, nine misclicks then. Nine. nine. That seems right. Okay, yeah, that's, that could easily be error. There was one person, though, that did vote no. Oh, uh, still. I do know who you, I do know who you are. I I just clicked on. <laughs> Was that a threat? <laughs> Sounded like it. God, let's be nice. Yes. I know who you are. <laughs> People with mental illness in the U.S. are blank times more likely to be incarcerated than they are to be hospitalized. Three times, six times, ten times, or twelve times. Three. I guess six. Yeah, that's my guess. Is six. It was 10 times. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Which, our group members tied for 6 and 10. Okay. okay. Yes. <sighs> more than blank number of, more than blank percent of people in the U.S. jails and prisons have at least one diagnosed mental illness or substance use disorder or both. 35%, 55%, 70%, or 85%. I think well, I think fifty five, but I don't know. I, I was going to say because the stat I gave was two and five, which would be forty, but it didn't include substance abuse, so I would say fifty five. I go. Yes. I'm agreeing with Justin. It was seventy percent. Shut yeah. up! Yeah, like this yeah. is wild. Yeah. Like we're all getting all these wrong because we know nothing about it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. We need Dr. But our group. Our group members got it right, though. Yeah, so awesome. Group members, you all are way smarter than us. They, they us have our backs. They have our backs. Thank God. <laughs> True or false? Stress caused by spending time in solitary confinement confinement can lead to permanent changes to people's brains and personalities. Oh, yeah. True. Definitely true. True. It was true. One person, one person said false. But it, it? it was true. Wow. Uh, it says person? 100% got it right. And I know who they are because wow. I clicked it. You know who you are. What if they like... That was a misclick. Realize that, that was definitely a misclick. <laughs> what I... One person. When I was doing the... I know, one. Just one. <laughs> what I thought was interesting when I was looking at like solitary confinement changing kind of the brain makeup is there's actually a term so it's post-incarceration syndrome so it's like ptsd so it's like complex ptsd right it's not actually a diagnosis but it's kind of like this subset of symptoms that are basically like ptsd but just make it slightly different that really when i was reading over it and i can't pull it from my brain at this point, Um, but really focuses on that culture aspect and how that Mm -hmm. culture and that prison culture impacts the way that we see the world. So interesting. So interesting to think about. But I, but yeah, 
I can't wait to hear what all the questions our group members have. So here to answer all those awesome group member questions is our very special guest, Dr. Lena Haji. So Lena, we are so excited that you are here today. Uh, Dr. Lena Haji is a licensed clinical psychologist and licensed mental health counselor specializing in psychodiagnostic assessment, forensic assessment, dual diagnosis, serious and persistent mental illness, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and substance abuse treatment. Her training includes working with mentally ill and duly diagnosed adults in inpatient and outpatient settings, including correctional facilities, substance abuse rehabilitation centers, outpatient clinics, psychiatric hospitals, and private practice. She was trained in the assessment and treatment of individuals ranging from mild psychiatric symptoms to those with serious and persistent mental illness, duly diagnosed patients, personality disordered patients, and psychopathy. In addition, she has served as a clinical director for a 500-patient maximum security correctional facility. So just in her bio alone, you all know that she knows way more than all four of us put together based on the past 30-minute conversation. So Lena, thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys for having me. I'm literally like, I was excited about this all day. I even paused my Netflix, which I don't pause my Netflix ever. So I was like, let me get it. Yeah, we're special. Yay. Thank you guys for having me. Honestly, this is such a privilege. I, I love the work you guys do. So thank you so much for giving me a voice. Absolutely. So before we jump into the group member questions, we just have a few questions for you. So first, how did you get interested in working in the prison system? Um, So I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I knew that at age nine when I struggled with my own um, mental health issues. I don't want to like go into that in full detail and bore you guys, but I had basically some um, somatic symptoms that nobody could figure out. And my parents took me to like neurologists and cardiologists and pediatricians. And I finally went to one doctor who finally like asked all the questions that nobody had asked and was like actually listening to me and asked me about like, did I not want to be on this earth anymore? And I don't want to get too morbid or like I even knew what suicide was at age nine, but I was like, Oh my God, this is the first person who's hearing me. And like, you know, understands. And when I left that office, I asked my mother, what kind of doctor was that? And my mother said, that's a psychologist. And I was like, sold. That's what I'm doing. So I was really lucky enough to know that I wanted to be a psychologist super early on. And then in college, I took kind of like a dumbed down forensic psychology class called psychology and the law. And this like badass woman comes in and she's like gorgeous. And she's like, you know, like just confident and just badass. And all of a sudden she starts talking about how she's working with sex offenders and psychopaths and serial killers. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's it. That's my calling. So yeah, I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. And then I, I also, my parents worked for the United Nations. So I, it was very instilled in me, like a sense of social justice. And, um, my father always said, you have to serve underprivileged populations or else like your life doesn't have any meaning, which sounds like cliche and kumbaya, but it really resonated with me. And, you know, inmates are the forgotten population. And so that sense of social justice was also kind of driving me. Awesome. Yeah, we were saying before you hopped on that it takes a very special person to work in correctional facilities and how, at least in our experiences of knowing people, it's usually that like social justice wanting to overhaul the system piece. Yeah. If by special you mean unwell, then you've got the right person. So thank you. (laughs) Just saying. No, I'm just kidding. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're all unwell. Trust me. I was about to say, me too, Bestie. 
Yeah, we're all resting. Okay, good. You're you're fitting in just fine, I promise. (laughs) Absolutely. So next question, kind of pivoting. Why did you decide to create a social media account and talk about mental health and all the stuff you do? Oh, my God. So I was super anti-social media because I didn't want to be like the dancing TikTok psychologist. No offense to any dancing TikTokers on here, but I can't dance. So I was like, I can't be like, this is your anxiety and like pointing to stuff because I can't, right? And so I, I just, I couldn't do that. And also the amount of misinformation and like self-diagnosing that was going on was turning me away from it. So if I'm perfectly honest, my ex-boyfriend, we're not going to get into that. He was like, you need, like I had printed, I had opened my own practice and I had printed a bunch of like paper pamphlets and brochures and people were looking at me like, what are you, 72 years old? Like nobody uses brochures and paper pamphlets and had, like, paper business cards. And people were like, please. Please, please get on social media. So I was very resistant to it at first, but then I saw like an opportunity to combat misinformation and to kind of, you know, put um, like correct information out there. And I'm not saying I'm the be all and end all that I know everything about everything in mental health, but I was just getting so frustrated that I was like, you know what? Let me do something with this account that's worthwhile. I mean, besides my um, bench pressing, which is so important. But anyway, um, And so, yeah, I was just like, I just started to go with it and see that people were like, oh, my God, thanks for clarifying that. Or like, oh, my God, I didn't get diagnosed with autism until I was in my 40s. And it was such a relief. And when I started to get that feedback and a lot of students asking me questions, it was like, "Okay, this is this could be cool. Like, this could be good. We love someone that corrects misinformation on social media. I know. I love you guys. (laughs) I'm just like, what do you bench? Oh, yeah. But she's 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 a savage. She like, wants to know what you bench. I don't know what I bench right now. That's really sad. But um, I am a workout maniac because if I don't work out, I might end up on the other side of the prison fence. Good to know. So, I feel that. I feel That's that. Really <laughs> Protective coping. I love it. Yeah, adaptive coping. Yeah. So, so Lena, the last question we ask all our guests is probably the most important one. Are you team muffins or team donuts? Oh, God, donuts. I knew you were going to be donuts. I knew it. Let's go. Is that a question that's so obvious? It's fried. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Me and Justin are team donuts, and Jess and KBI are team muffins. And every single time we're just like. You did. Yeah, you're muted. Nobody yeah, cares really what you about muffins anyway. Like, have you ever had a muffin top with some nice crispy sugar on top? Just have a donut. It's not fried. <laughs> I can give you a fried muffin. Uh, if it's a fried muffin, then I might switch teams. But like, you're taking carbs, you're frying them, and then you're putting sugar on them. Like, there's a it's fried. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, I, I'm so ups- I'm so disappointed in the two of you. <laughs> I feel like that's... It's okay. I'm used to disappointing people. It's fine. (laughs) I can't. I can't. Oh, my God. I feel like Lena just, like, went into mom mode. It's like, I'm so disappointed in you, too. Like, we just, like... It it actually triggered something deep in me. (laughs) It it literally... It was like... It was like my mom talking to me again. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. But, like, muffins, really? Thank you. Thank you. She claims because you eat half of it. That it's a good item. It's like you throw the other half. Away. Yeah, KBI. If you switch to donuts, then maybe there'd be no disappointment. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's okay. It's okay. 
what would I live for then? Oh my god, <laughs> I live for the group member questions. So let's get into it before KBI starts a shame cycle for herself. Okay, so Dr. Haji, thanks so much for meeting with us. I'm a huge fan of your work, and so glad to have you on. Um, you are so funny and so knowledgeable and so fun. So excited to get into it. So we have a lot of great questions. So thanks to our group members for asking all these questions. Um, and if you feel uncomfortable answering any. You just say pass and we'll just keep it moving. Um, okay. So the first one is from C. She's from Ontario, Canada. And oh, she yeah. asks, I live near a prison that has a lot of multi-generational incarceration. I imagine that would significantly increase mental health issues, lack of support and lack of stable home life. Is this something that's looked into at the re- in the research? Just wondering if it's more researched. So I don't think it's researched as much as it should be, um, but I've seen it firsthand. I literally was working at a prison once where the grandfather, the father, and the son were all in the same same camp. Wow. Yeah, it was like, and they were all there for very similar offenses, uh, drug offenses. Um, I think a couple of the offenses were violent, but it was just like, and it was it was heartbreaking and usually they don't keep family members in the same camp they'll separate them so i thought that was actually kind of cool i think they had earned that which is a story for another day but i remember how and i hope the listeners don't take this the wrong way but i i remember how comfortable they were in prison they were very happy and acclimated and kind of had just accepted that this was part of their life journey. It wasn't a shock. It wasn't something bad. It was really normalized. And so in terms of intergenerational incarceration, I I mean, that was like a prime clinical example where I was like, you know, they almost expected their sons to come meet them. And that was just heartbreaking because, you know, once you've normalized incarceration, the chances of changing that for you and your family are pretty slim to none without an intervention, which we don't provide. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> we talked all about that before we were like, mm-hmm. what kind of mental health treatment is there? We'll get to that. Cause there's a question about yeah. that. But the next one is from Anibis from Germany. They asked, do you think that prisons in other countries handle mental health, the mental health of, of, let me rephrase. Do you think that prisons in other countries handle mental health aspects of their prisoners better than prisons in the U S so there's worse and there's better. Um, US, U.S. prisons definitely have a very, very, very long way to go. I think we're getting there slowly. Um, I don't know if the, the term third world is still uh, politically appropriate. So if it's not, I apologize. But I think third world countries obviously have much l- even more, less resources. And, you know, those are just kind of absolute chaos and anarchy. But There are some countries that are really leading the way in terms of how to do incarceration ethically and how to lower recidivism and treat mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The country that's in the lead right now is Norway. And um, I was actually just reading up on this a couple of weeks ago. Their prisons are much much smaller in size. So it gives already there's more individual attention, you know, like Rikers Island in New York has like 12,000 inmates. And I know we've all, all, all of us on this call have had crazy caseloads at some point in our life, but that's insane. Like, how do you have 12,000 inmates in one place? That, that's just, it's just wow. ridiculous. So in Norway, they have more centralized, smaller prisons. They have a lot more programs. Even the prisons themselves are aesthetically pleasing. They have artwork. They make it look more comfortable. And then some people want to say, Oh, well, then it's not a deterrent. And then people will get comfortable, but 
Fun fact, prison does not serve as a deterrent. That's been proved over and over and over again. They have a lot more um, programs for inmates to keep in touch with family members. So there's a lot more family support. They try to keep them close to where their home is. They even have conjugal visits. They Some of them have visits three times a week with family members. And so between the programming, the substance abuse treatment, the smaller size, the individual care, they also focus a lot on restorative justice, which basically means helping the inmates understand their crime from the victim of a perspective, which doesn't work with everyone. If you're a psychopath, that's a story for another day. But for most offenders, you can actually engage in restorative justice. And so all those factors combined, actually, Norway is really leading the way. And some research points to the fact that the U.S. is trying to head in that direction. I'm in Florida, so that's another story. But yeah. Wow. Yeah, because actually the next question was, which country has the best best mental health support? It's Norway. You're, you're way ahead of the game. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And what was the term that you said? Something justice. It was... Uh, restorative justice. Restorative justice. So the U.S. prison system, would you say that they're... You said they're on their way. Is there anything they're doing that's kind of in that arena right now? That you so know there of. are a couple of like programs um, and organizations that what they do is they have. I'm sure you guys have seen this. I don't know if you watch true crime. I do watch way too much true crime. It's really you guys need to have an intervention on me. But anyway, <laughs> so like it, I think it was on like Dateline or 2020 or one of those where they actually have the offender meet with the victim. Now, obviously, there's a huge process to go through this. They have to make sure the offender is, you know, engaging in programming, not going to be violent, that the victim wants to do this. There's a whole list of things. But they have these programs where the victim meets with the offender and they kind of explain each other, their perspective to one another. And thus far, from what I can tell, that is actually really helpful for both people. It helps victim, the victim heal, and it helps the offender kind of tap into their empathy, if you will. Now, again, it depends on the type of offender. It depends on the type of crime. It depends on a lot of different factors. But there are some programs, not enough, that are focusing on restorative justice from that angle. That is so interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for commenting on that. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, okay. Um, the same person, Anibis from Germany, said, do people in prison have access to mental health resources if they ask for it? So, yes, but now we need to define mental health resources. So I've worked in nine prisons in four states. I've worked in prisons in New Jersey, New York, California, and Florida. And I can tell you that just in between those four states, the differences are vast, really vast. So like in California, where it's more progressive, rehabilitation and treatment oriented, and the prisons are not privatized, a.k.a. they're not for profit off of people's misery. That's what I wrote my dissertation on. So I have to take a breath. Okay. So um, in California, you'll, you'll actually have an inmate will actually have a 50 minute session or a one hour session, or they'll have actually have DBT units. We have DBT units in California for, you know, people with mood liability and borderline personality and self injurious behavior, things like that. They have specialized treatment. I even gave acceptance and commitment therapy, sex offender treatment. So California was much more on the way. In Florida, it's literally, hi, are you suicidal? Are you suicidal? Are you homicidal? No? Okay, next. Are you suicidal? Are you homicidal? No? Okay, next. I mean, it's it's literally about liability. Um, the, I, when I was the clinical director of a prison here in Florida, I had 12 therapists working under me, and their caseloads were like 200 inmates each. So, <laughs> I mean... Oh, my goodness. What, what are you, you know, what are you yeah. doing? How? 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 How can you even, you're just, you're doing what, what we used to call check-ins. 
you yeah. know, and, and, and they're so focused on, I mean, you guys can relate to this. The paperwork is we're not, we're treating the, the chart. We're not treating the patient in a lot of these states. Um, so yes, um, any prison will always have a way for an inmate to, um, get mental health treatment. They can put in a request if it's an emergency, Hopefully they can tell a correction officer who will relay that message. Um, unfortunately, sometimes they have to act out or engage in self-injurious behavior, do something egregious to get to mental health. Oh, so wow. that's clearly a broken system. But the bottom line is there are federal guidelines that all correctional facilities do have to have mental health. But again, varies drastically from state to state and from facility to facility. Yeah, I'm so glad that you talked about like the different states too, because even... You know, New York, New Jersey, you yeah. know, that whole like, oh my gosh, people who yeah. aren't, who don't live there, they're like, they're so close. They're the same. They're not, they're not, they're not the no. same. Not at all. Um, I worked at but, Sing Sing in New York for two years and I also worked at Jersey, Jersey, um, Trenton State for a couple oh, of years. Those were pretty different. Trenton State's interesting because I, I would do, um, we would go, when I was an EMT, I would go there all the time. It's like, yeah. Oh, I'm converting you, Kristen. Yeah, you're That's converting me. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, well, okay. And, and so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, one of the interesting things you said was like to access mental health care, you have to act out or do something egregious, which then hurts you. It, it has a target put on your back. It has, you know, a, a mark put in your chart. It has all of that, that then now you have consequences. So when it comes, when it comes up for things like, early release or, or things like that. They look at that and they say, well, look at these five times that you got into fistfights because you just wanted to speak to a counselor. But the reality was this is still a thing. And like, it's just, it's again, a broken system. Correct. And, and, you know, not, I, 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 again, I don't want to diminish anybody's struggles in prison, but sometimes you have, inmates who are high on psychopathy or very antisocial who will engage in behaviors just to get a spot in mental health or they will manipulate. And again, I don't like that term so much because it's, it's not never that black and white, right? Mm -hmm. But they will then take away resources for people, for inmates who actually need it. And so 90% of your job then becomes weeding out the, the bull crap. Can I curse the bull stuff? Okay. Can weeding out the bullshit. Um, Or, or they may engage in something like a fight or self-injurious behavior. And instead of receiving mental health treatment, they'll be punished for it. So you're going to the hole because you got into a fight. So we're, we're, you're not seeing mental health at all. You're going right to the segregation. Wow. Yeah. And that's the cycle that that creates. Yeah. Yeah. Cause before you got on, we were talking about like how people survive in prison and like, you know, the things that they have to do to get their needs met. And that's, that's just such a wild cycle, you know? It's crazy to think about. Um, okay. Um, let's see. So Ren asked, could knowing someone in prison affect your mental health? Absolutely. And I think you guys are probably more equipped to handle that than me. Cause I work on the inside. You guys, you know, I think that, um, I have worked with family members of offenders and, uh, what I do work a lot with lately in the past year is juvenile offenders. And so often they have an incarcerated parent and you can just see how that the absenteeism affects them. You know, just an absent parent in general is hard enough. But then knowing that they're incarcerated and thinking, is something going to happen to them? Are they going to come home? Um, are they okay in there? When is the next time I'm going to see them? Are they going to be moved? Because inmates are moved all the time from prison to prison without the family members being told. So you might have a trip on Friday to go see dad 
at the prison that's half an hour away. And then you find out that he was moved eight hours up north. You know, that's just completely life disruption. But nobody talks about that or cares about that. Well, he shouldn't have committed the crime and he wouldn't be in prison. And it's like, really, it's not it's not that cut and dry. So, yeah, absolutely. I think I think people's mental health can absolutely suffer having a loved one in prison. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to know that. I don't know that my sister was locked up. I mean, I wouldn't be able to think about anything else. Right. It would is she okay? Is she, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is she eating? Is she is she I just, I, like I'm just using that as an example. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. Renee from Australia asked, do you think that people heighten slash fake their mental health issues in order to potentially get a lesser sentence? In general, do I think they do that? No. Does it happen? Absolutely. That's actually probably 90% of my job. Maybe not 90%, maybe like 70 or 80%. So I do a lot of competency to stand trial evaluations. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of what we call secondary gain. Um, so yeah, if you have a mental illness, uh, a true mental illness, you're more likely to go to a forensic hospital than you are to go to prison. So there's a built in incentive right there, um, and get a lesser sentence or get some meds if you have a, you know, but I always, you know, I used to kind of, I, I was trained where it was at first it was like, oh, he's malingering. Let's just push him to the side. And for those who don't know, malingering means feigning mental illness to get a secondary gain, to get something, you know. And and I had this, I even, I'm guilty to say it, but I want to be honest. I used to kind of be like, he's malingering, like he's full of shit, put him to the side. But then I had a supervisor who said to me one day, but why is he malingering? What does he really want? Because that's where the underlying issue is, right? So for example, if I had, if I have an inmate in prison who's saying, yo doc, I'm saying I'm, I'm hearing voices and I'm feeling like crap and I'm suicidal and he wants to go to mental health. And I know that he's not hearing voices and I know that he's not suicidal and I know that he's just saying these symptoms because he wants to get into mental health. Well, why? And I had a guy tell me I owe money on the yard because I bought heroin. And for those of you who don't know, you can get tons of drugs in prison. You can get more drugs in prison than you can get in the, in the community. So I said to him, okay, see, now that you're being honest with me and you're telling me you owe money on the yard, you have a drug debt. Now we can actually attack the real problem, which is you have a substance abuse problem. And now you're having consequences because of it. And we need to get you sober, you know? So um, yes, people malinger a lot. They not a lot, but often enough, and they they fake for all kinds of reasons. But I've I think the more I I am in this field, the more I really like that thought of why are they malingering? What is really really going on? Why do you you know sometimes sex offenders malinger because they're they're very targeted in prison, so they want to hide in mental health. You know, so I think that's the better question: Why are people faking? Yeah. I never thought of it that way. Well, I didn't either until my supervisor was yeah. like, listen, think about that. And I was like, I was very dismissive and I'm not proud yeah. of that. Hey, we've all been there. You know, yeah. we've all been there, especially yeah. with secondary gain. We're like, oh, God, come on. We'll see this. You know, <laughs> exactly. like we're not silly. We see it. Yeah. Um, what is the most common psychological disorder that people have in prisons? If there is one, it's from anonymous. I would probably say your standard depression and anxiety for obvious reasons. Um, you do have a large amount of um Inmates who have uh, antisocial personality disorder, which is, um, you know, basically somebody who goes against societal norms. Um, I think it's somewhere it, the research says somewhere between like 50 and 70 percent, which is pretty high. Wow. Um, but what I see most of is substance use disorders. I see the criminalization of drug addiction. Uh, I'm not saying that you're not responsible for your behaviors 
when you're engaging in substance use, you can't rob people, you can't, you know, commit theft and crimes to get money. But that is another example of the underlying problem. You know, this is why drug court is now something that's coming into play and and has been really effective. I digress a little bit. But so I would say substance use, your general depression, anxiety, unfortunately, unfortunately, we do see a lot of psychotic disorders, bipolar disorders, and quite a bit of uh, what we used to call access to borderline antisocial histrionic narcissistic is pretty high in prison as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, another one from anonymous are suicide rates in prison higher than the normal population. And are there gender differences? Yes, they are almost three times higher than the general population. Yeah. Oh. I'm not sure about gender def- differences. That's something I have to look into, but yes, yeah, suicide rates in prison are extremely high. Um, understandably so. Um, so yeah, about three times as high. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Maggie from Colorado asked a really good question. So she says, uh, has working in a correctional facility changed you or your point of view on the world? Um, yes, but it's ebbed and flowed. Um, I, if uh, you know, I believe in transparency. So I remember at one point working in corrections, I was burned out. I mean, it was Florida corrections and it's kind of crisis, 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 and you have no resources and nobody cares. And all they care about is paperwork. And you feel like you're fighting this, pushing a boulder uphill and you're doing it by yourself. I'm not saying there aren't other people in Florida prisons who actually care about the the social justice and the, and the, and the mental health of these inmates, but you're not supported. You don't feel supported in terms of resources and, and even pay. I mean, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so I got to a place where I was kind of what I was talking about before. I started to get very dismissive. You know, inmates would say they were suicidal and I would just be like, no, dude, no, you're not. I just saw you playing basketball. Go back to yourself, you know, because I knew it was secondary gain, if you will. Um, and then I caught myself and I was like, gosh, Lena, like you're getting jaded. You're you might miss something. Because you're, you're, you've become skeptical, you've become kind of detached, you know, and the reason I share about this, not because I'm proud of it, but because I think it's important to be honest and for mental health practitioners to talk about this because you get burnout and you can get jaded. And, and I, I've seen that happen. And then I've, thankfully, I've caught myself and I've, I, I try to take advantage of consulting and supervision and even having coworkers be like, why are you irritable all damn day? Like, go get a damn coffee or something. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you just, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be prison. I'm sure you guys have experienced burnout. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's changed me in that sense. Um, but I like to think that I can somehow always reel it in um, and remember the bigger picture and why I got into this in the first place. Um, and it has changed me, not in the sense that I feel like, there's constantly danger lurking and I need to lock my door or anything like that. It's changed me in the sense that I've gotten really angry at the systemic failures. You know, I'm a big believer in personal accountability. I am. I think people need to take accountability for their decisions, their choices and their behaviors. But sometimes that's so overwhelming to ask somebody who's stuck in a system that doesn't support individual accountable behavior change. And so that drives me Absolutely nuts. The chronic poverty, the the substance abuse, the intergenerational trauma, the 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 abuse, the foster care system, the school, the prison pipeline. I mean, I can go on and on. And so that has gotten me in a way it's good because it's made me more um, proactive in terms of things I can do, whether it's just voting or posting something or, you know, writing to the prison policy initiative, whatever it is. And in some ways it's gotten me, um, you know, just 
kind of pissed off, to be honest. Yo, I so appreciate your honest reflection, especially in like noticing your own burnout in a system that again can be toxic for everybody. I had a question that was like related. It's going to go into the systemic issues for sure, but it's re- related to the nuance of what you're saying. And what we know is like the biggest factor in therapy of outcomes is like your relationship or mm-hmm. the perceived relationship that the client says that they feel comfortable with you. So I'm wondering like within the prison system, how with all these systemic issues, having 200 clients, like how do you form meaningful relationships? Especially if it feels like, yo, all I got is a few minutes for like a check-in. What does that look like? How do you earn that trust? You know what? I love that question. And I always tell my students, like, it doesn't matter if you're psychodynamic or CBT or act or emotion focused, like the rapport is, is where it's at. And you know, you guys can probably relate to this. Have you ever worked with uh, clinicians who are very book smart? but yet they don't have those people skills, right? Okay. So yeah, you guys, you guys know this. So they're just like looking in the DSM or they're looking at their, their cognitive handbook. And they're like, do you have catastrophic thoughts? And it's like, dude, that's not how that works. What are you doing? You know what I'm saying? So like, I think it's the same way in prison, you know, like I curse with my patients because most of them curse. Let's just, it is what it is. I talk to my patients about the music they want to listen to in that little time I have, the music they're listening to, why they're in prison, what neighborhood they're from, you know, and I talk to them as if they're human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't talk to them as inmates. And I've seen, I've seen doctoral level, master's level, psych, medical doctors talk to them as if they, number one, fear them. Number two, as if they're subhuman. And number three, as if they're just reciting something from a book. And you guys know that that's not just something in correctional facilities. We see that in every single, you know, organization. So I think even if I, all I can do is a drive-by check-in, just remembering like, hey, so-and-so, did you speak to your mom? Did you ever get that letter mm. from your girlfriend? Mm. Did you go to rec yesterday? Mm. How, how's, how's your basketball coming along? And if, if, it, if it's even just a little bit, like, oh, shoot, she remembers. She remembers that I was waiting for my mom to write me. That goes so far, especially in prison when they have nothing, you know, so. What I love so much about that is that you can hear your authenticity (laughs) as you talk about that and the humanness that you connect with. Like, it's just so real. And I'm like, instantly as you were saying that, I'm like, I see how you form great relationships. (laughs) I'm with you. It's like it's something it can't come from a fucking book. Or it can't no. come from reading all about prison culture. It's like, are you connecting with the humanness of the person in front of you with however much time you got? I, uh, absolutely. absolutely. It's like, you know, yeah. dude, like, like what, what, when you, when you get out of here, what do you want to do? Mm. Nobody ever asks them that. Nobody gives a fuck, you know, like, okay, I can do the CBT. I can do the catastrophic thoughts and I'm, I, I'm all for any modality of treatment that helps anybody. But at the end of the day, especially with limited resources and limited time, Hey, maybe I need to just ask you, you know, what did you want to be as a kid? And what happened? How'd you end up here? Like, what's going on, dude? And that, that goes such a long way. That's so powerful of a question too, you know? Yeah. So powerful. I love that. Okay. Next one. Marley from Colorado asked, I work at a medical clinic near a jail and I often see incarcerated patients. I can't imagine the feelings that arise for them as they're handcuffed and accompanied by guards for their entire therapy visit. How can I help them feel as comfortable, normal, and human as possible, even in a situation where they seemingly have no power? 
So that's a great question. And it kind of goes back to what um, Dr. J and I were just talking about, which is just treating him like a human, you know, uh, first of all, you know, the skeptic in me and the, the 20, I worked in prisons for 20 years, even though I'm only 25. It's <laughs> magical. Um, anyway, um, so, you know, this, the, 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 the jaded person is in me is going to say, tell her to tell her or him to be careful. Right. Because mm -hmm. I have seen so many inmates manipulate the system to get to outside hospital. Why do they want to get to outside hospital? They get a, they get a car ride. They get a view. They get to see female nurses. They get to get better food. They get to be distracted. They get to be out of the prison. So there is a lot of secondary gain. We see it all the time of guys doing dumb shit or pretending they're sick to get to the hospital. That being said, I love that she asked that question and that she even thinks about the simple fact that she has insight into wanting to do that means that she's already awesome. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's a she or, or a he, but th this mm -hmm. person is already awesome because they're thinking, how do I make it okay for this person who has such horrific circumstances right now? You know, and I should also point out that those two things are not, this is what people don't understand. You talk about nuance, Dr. J, and like two things can coexist. This can be a dangerous, violent, not great human being who did some fucked up shit. He can also deserve to be treated as a human when he gets medical care, right? Mm -hmm. So. People have, a, I think people have a problem marrying those, you know? I've treated tons of sex offenders. Do I like sex offenders? No, I don't. Do I like what they've engaged in? No, I don't. Do some of their crimes absolutely make me nauseous? Yes. Does that mean I'm going to treat them as subhuman or less than because of that? No. I took like, you know, that's part of our oath. That's part of our ethical guidelines. That's part of who we are as humans, this judgment-free zone. And of course, that's something to aspire to. We're all human. There's times where I've been like, dude, I don't want to work with that guy. Oh my God. Oh my God. But anyway. Um, so yeah, I think the answer is what um, Dr. J and I were just talking about. Just treat him like a human. You know, are you thirsty? Mm -hmm. um, are you, know, does, does anything hurt? I, like do your normal job as if you would with any other patient and, and they will recognize that and they will appreciate it. Not all. Some. I love that. Marley, you're already on your way. That's amazing. So, yeah. all right. So Joe asked a really interesting question that I think we're all going to love hearing you talk about this because you love to talk about psychopathy. So just say someone gets diagnosed with symptoms of or a diagnosis of psychopathy in prison, would they be able to be rehabilitated if they were to get mental health treatment? I guess they're asking, are they able to be re rehabilitated if they're experiencing <laughs> symptoms of psychopathy? I love psychopaths so much. And I, I mean that in a clinical way, in a clinical, clinical way. Um, so, okay. So can psychopathy be treated is kind of the overall general mm -hmm. question. Yep. And the answer is it depends what part of psychopathy are you treating, right? So there are different components to psychopathy. Some of them involve things like having no empathy, no remorse. Those things are harder to treat because how do you instill empathy and remorse in somebody who's neurologically incapable of feeling that, right? So are, are we more addressing the behavioral components of psychopathy, the violence, the, the, you know, the engaging in criminal activities, the parasitic living, um, the, you know, which, so I would just, you know, not to get all technical and stuff, but I would first try to think what aspect of the psychopathy are we treating? So m we used to do insight-oriented treatment with psychopaths. I think this was like in the 80s and 90s. And they found that that treatment actually made psychopaths worse because they learned to mimic how to feign empathy and remorse. And so they would go in front of the parole board and pretend that they had all this empathy and remorse and they would get parole and they would get out and they would reoffend. So quickly, psychologists were like, okay, that's not working. We're making them worse because now they're pretending that they care and they don't. So the main 
modality to go with when it comes to psychopathy is behavioral. It's, it's just behavior. So, you know, you want to stab somebody. <laughs> Can you punch the punching bag instead? I know that's way oversimplified, but you, you guys are clinicians. You get the gist. Um, so for example, I worked in a sex offender forensic hospital where there was a guy who was constantly getting into trouble because he was like fighting everybody and he was super narcissistic and had a huge ego and he just was a control freak. And we didn't know what to do with this guy. He kept going to the box or the hole, whatever you want to call it. So we as a treatment team decided, why don't we put him in a position of power where he can channel that to something positive? So we put him in charge of the unit. And this was a risk. We were like, this might be really fucked up. So we put him in charge of the unit and it ended up working because he now he cared about this unit and he wanted it to be clean and orderly and well. And he was able to channel kind of that power hunger and control hunger into a positive way. Um, and he stopped fighting with everybody, stopped going to the hole and the unit was clean. And, you know, was it a perfect intervention? No, but, you know, so you have to kind of look at what, what part of psychopathy, what are you treating? And does the person want treatment? Cause that's with anybody, right? We can't force people to change if they don't want to change. That's with anyone. That's so interesting because I always thought like if they don't have the capacity, like you're talking about the neurological part, like if they don't have the capacity for empathy, then like, what do you do? You know what I mean? Like, what do you do? It's probably hard. But like you said, the behavioral stuff yeah. makes sense. Totally. Okay. Kate from California says, what are Dr. Haji's thoughts on no cash slash zero bail? We know Dr. Haji is not an attorney or a lawyer, so answer this however you want. And by extension, does spending a significant time in jail, which must be very traumatic, increase the likelihood or length of prison sentences? So I think bail is complete bullshit and we should do away with it. I mean, bail, people are, what happened to innocent until proven guilty? That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, <laughs> bail is basically in a nutshell saying you can get out if you have money. Like, really? Yeah, How does wow. that work? Mm -hmm. So, so I've, I've committed crimes or egregious crimes, but if I have money, I can pay my way out to go home. And we all know that the criminal justice system unfairly targets poor and ethnic minorities. And so guess who ends up staying in jail? Poor people. And that's just, you know, so I, I read somewhere, actually the prison policy initiative on, um, on Instagram just posted something on bail today. And it said something like, uh, the annual median, the median annual income for those to make bail needs to be uh, like $10,000. They, they have to make at least $10,000 a month to, to afford bail or something like that. And the annual median income of an inmate is $15,000 a year. So it's like, I can't pay my rent. I can't pay my bills. I can't support my children, but I'm going to spend a ton of money on bail. So I think bail is complete. It's, it's completely unjust. It's completely bullshit. And I don't understand the correlation between having money and committing a crime. Like your crime isn't just as bad just because you can pay to get out and go home. Like that's insane. Um, the second part of that question was talking about sentences and mental illness. Yeah. Um, like I think they were asking, let me, let me double check actually. Sorry. I lost it. Um, Okay, so spending a significant amount of time in jail, does that increase the likelihood of a prison sentence? So if like you're kind of awaiting trial, I'm assuming I'm just Oh, that's a really good here. question. You know what? I have no idea. I'm yeah. I, I have no idea. I know that like a lot of jails are backed up, especially like Rikers Island in New York. They're so backed up. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Khalif Browder story, but this was a kid who had 
allegedly stolen a backpack. He had, in fact, not stolen the backpack. And he spent three years in Rikers Island waiting for trial because he didn't have stealing a backpack. He had no bail money. He got this is such a heart wrenching story, but he got severely beat. He got severely abused. And when he left Rikers Island after being found innocent of not having stolen the backpack, he committed suicide. And so that's a heart wrenching story. And it's horrific, but it really shows you know, this kid was was accused of a really minor, ridiculous crime, which he apparently didn't even commit, but spent three years in Rikers Island, endured a whole bunch of horrific bullshit. And he was like 16 or 17, went home, couldn't deal with the PTSD and then had killed himself. That's so, so wild. I mean, yeah, it's horrible. It's a horrible story. There's a Netflix documentary on it. I don't want you guys to like cry all night, but it's 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 really good. And it just highlights like how fucked up the system is really. Yeah. Cause we were talking about that a little bit before you got on and, and just as a lay person who lived in that area, um, Rikers is like, what I know about Rikers is like only the people who are like, really like they've done like some really deep stuff go there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like really bad crimes. That's who, who goes to Rikers. That's so unfortunate about yeah. that case. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Ali from California, he asked, how does mental health impact recidivism? So people who are diagnosed with a mental health disorder are much are much more likely to recidivate, not because they're bad, you know, more more bad people. Is that even English? More bad people. But because um, a lot of them don't have resources in the community. Right. And we also know that serious mental illness has a high comorbidity rate with substance abuse. So let's say you have schizophrenia and you self-medicate with weed or alcohol. You commit a crime in prison. You get out of prison. You have no housing, no skills, no access to mental psychiatry, no mental health meds, no therapy, no case management. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're hearing voices. Okay, you know what helps my voices when I do some cocaine or when I drink some alcohol or when I smoke weed. So I'm going to do that. But how am I going to get the weed? I'm going to commit a crime. And round and round and round we go. You guys get the idea. So it's a broken cycle where mentally ill people are not only are they criminalized more, they have higher recidivism rates and they end up spending more time in jail and prisons. I mean, prisons and jails are the new psych hospitals. You know, after deinstitutionalization of of psychiatric hospitals in the 1970s, um, I think Chicago, Cook County Jail, and the one in L.A., what's the one in L.A.? L.A. County Jail. Those are the largest providers of mental health services in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Cook County wow. Jail, Rikers, and L.A. Jail are the largest psychiatric providers in the U.S. So, of course, mentally ill people end up in jail and prisons all yeah. the time. Totally. Okay, we have time for one more. Okay. I don't, I don't want this to end, but it has oh to. Oh my God, I don't so, want to okay. go You guys are like, please, let me go. Yep. Uh, the last one's from Anonymous. Um, so are people in solitary confinement more likely to have suicidal thoughts? Yes, they are. And uh, solitary confinement, while I will say that, um, you know, we have to figure out something with solitary confinement. But yes, solitary confinement. I mean, it's it's sensory deprivation, right? You're literally have less lights, less human interaction. Um, a lot of people develop psychotic symptoms, understandably so, because you're you're in a dark box. So you start hearing stuff and seeing stuff and smelling stuff and your senses become heightened and you can become paranoid and depressed. And so, yes, that is the, the yes. Solitary confinement is an absolute mess. Um and I, I got to be honest, there are some inmates that are so violent, so violent that are just constantly fighting, shanking, trying to murder, sexually assaulting, throwing feces, threatening people. You know, there are some inmates that are so 
hor- horrifically violent that they do have to be separated or, you know, something has to be done. It's just we don't we don't as prisons in, in America, we don't know yet what to do. So we just throw them in a black hole, which guess what? That makes them worse. I, I'm so sad that this is over and we, we're coming to an end. Like, Lena, I, I learned so much from you. I'm sure I could speak for all of us on the podcast as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really sad. Like, I could hear you talk about <laughs> prisons and mental health and psychopathy all day. Um, but unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. Um, and thank you all group members for joining us for today's episode. A special thanks once again to our guest, Dr. Lena Haji, for sharing all of her knowledge with us today. We hope you learned about mental health care in the U.S. prison system, the systemic issues related to incarceration, how prisons impact mental health and suicidality, and so much more, obviously, from Dr. Haji and not us, because the second half of this episode was much more informative. <laughs> than the first yeah. half but make sure to go follow Dr. Haji on social media at Rise Psychological Services uh, we'll add the link in the show notes please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and share this episode with someone who you think would be interested in it and we will see you next week in group therapy bye Thanks. bye guys bye guys Thanks.